Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Since its launch, tens of thousands of Muslims have given zakat through NZF. We're the only platform with a national reach enabling you to give zakat to those who need it here. Across the country, Muslims are in need. Your zakat has the potential to change their lives. Just go to www.nzf.org.uk to calculate your zakat, choose how it's used, and keep updated about the impact it's having on the lives of Muslims where you live. NZF. Give zakat here. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. This is Ibrahim Khan from Islamic Finance Guru. And with me, we have a guest, Usman Khan from Apex3, which is a startup based in London in the UK. Usman is someone that was spoken very highly of by a mutual friend of ours called Hussein, who's the founder of Onfido, which is a very, very successful company that's raised over 200 million now. I can't imagine what Hussein's zakat bill is going to be like, Usman. It's going to be absolutely crazy. <laughs> uh, anyone that Hussein recommends so highly, I thought I must reach out. And Usman, having heard your story, I thought it'd be great to just share that with everyone because I'm sure other people will benefit as well from your story as a successful founder, growing a team to dozens and dozens of people. I think it was 200 people you said in the end and selling to the biggest investment banks in the world and then successfully weaning yourself out of a company and then starting a new one. I think it's going to be a really interesting chat. So welcome, Usman. Welcome, Slam, And uh, it's a real honor and a pleasure to be here and uh, happy to participate in this podcast. Fantastic. And by the way, guys, I'm sure you'll be forgiving of us if there's any background noise. My son is currently asleep. Smart, I don't know about your kids, but we're all understanding that we're in the COVID era. So <laughs> I think we all accept these days that kids are just going to make an appearance. No, thank you for that. Yes, my kids, unfortunately, are not asleep and uh, they're a bit lively this evening. So, yes, you may have some background chitter chatter. And <laughs> I had a moment a couple of days ago, actually, where my son made an appearance on a live webinar that I was leading on YouTube. That was my moment where, you know, that academic in Korea who had his kids interrupt his. Yes. Uh, so I had that moment, but it was much, much smaller scale. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> so Usman, whereabouts did you grow up? I'd be really interested to hear about where this story started and if there was like any kind of lessons we can learn from your childhood even. Sure. I grew up in Walthamstow, East London. And basically I went to a state school called Kelm Scott School. Before that, South Grove Primary, then Kelmscott School, and belonged to a Pakistani family. My father came here in the 70s as an economic migrant. He was actually an entrepreneur as well. When he came here, he started his own factory, making like leather garments and what have you. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, and he actually started a couple of factories and he's done reasonably well. And then he went into properties for a bit. My childhood was spent in East London, in Walthamstow, and I love sports, I love playing cricket, football. I had some very influential brothers who I used to hang out with, specifically brothers older than me. While growing up, I was always fascinated by the deen and different aspects of it. Obviously, being in a Pakistani family, I wouldn't say my family were like overtly conservative Islamic. They were pretty liberal as well, I'd say. Obviously, all the basic foundations of Islam were built. But I was always interested in discussions about the proof of God, his existence, 
very rational and intellectual type discussions, even from a young age, actually. And I remember I used to get involved in discussions around that. There used to be quite a few circles in East London that we used to go to talks, in other words, by speakers. So I must say I was involved in Islamic discussions from a young age, I'd say. Yeah. And, um, and when was this, if you don't mind me asking? Like what so, decade? So we're talking the 90s here. So this is the 1990s. Now I'm showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> my decade of being teenager and growing up was the 20s, like the noughties. And I think that the 90s London like Islamic scene was very different to like what it is today. Oh, definitely. Not to digress too much, but you had quite a few Islamic groups around, I'd say, who were quite overtly with differing opinions, I'd say. Yeah. And yeah, you have to navigate that. But there was a lot of energy, I'd say. There was a lot of energy towards people trying to propagate their view and some doing it in a good stylistic way where it was very welcoming, others doing it in a very headmaster teacher-like style way. Mm. And so there was a lot of energy, I'd say. And, you know, everyone pretty much was well-intentioned, but there were differing views and, and they were quite apparent in terms of the differences. Sure. But it was a time when your yearning for knowledge actually increased as you came across these different intersections of people who belong to Islam. And I thought that was quite fascinating, actually, growing up. Amidst all this experience of your religion, culture and background, was there a business aspect as well, given that the rest of your life pretty much has been spent in business? You know, to be honest, when I was young, I was really focused on my studies to some extent. I wanted to get good grades and I wanted to beat my classmates, right? So that was always something I remember being young I wanted to do. To be honest, no, not really. Like the business aspect came later in my life, I'd say. Yes, a few times I sold sandwiches in the playground, <laughs> so I didn't do that. Really? Mum made sandwiches, and I remember selling them in the playground to a few of my friends. So, yeah, there was like doing business without thinking it was business, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so I do remember doing that. And that was purely because I think my friends used to love the sandwiches my mum used to make, cucumber and cheese and also kebabs, which had a distinct smell to them, but they were quite tasty. I thought, you know what, if you want it, then yeah, feel free to give me something for it. And I yeah. remember I think it was like 5p or 10p or whatever it was back in the day. So yeah, there was an element of that. But I would say I wasn't doing anything more beyond that during that period. And then you went to study, I think it was a maths and computer science at Queen Mary. That's right. How do you think that shaped you as you are today? I would say that there was a profound impact during university years. I'd say university really opened my mind up to actually loads of different areas so in terms of like the whole again the whole debating different concepts about existence even debating about the economy and different aspects of the economy i was always interested in economic concepts and even looking at the different types of ideologies that existed in the world through capitalism communism and other religions as well i was fascinated by the whole thing and it's because the people who i was good friends with who were studying philosophy and religious studies with like religious orientation because I used to hang around with them. I was always fascinated by the discussions. That was one element. But the other element was I was studying computer science and maths. And one of the big elements and what I really liked about it was you had to literally think of your own project and come up with your own idea, right? And or pick the projects that the university give you. And so I actually came up with my own idea at the time. And the idea was basically to create a multiplayer backgammon game. So I don't know if you know backgammon. I know that it's a game, but I don't actually know the rules or anything. Yeah, no, that's okay. But yeah, it's a bit like drafts, like chess. It's a different type of game like that. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to create like backgammon online where multiple players can play. The whole point was that while I build that game, I'm implementing the concepts by computer science modules of teaching. And there's a mathematical element to it as well, because in fact, at that time, I was trying to build like a, it wasn't artificial intelligence per se, but it was like an intelligent player that players could also play against, right? And so that was like my first foray into like doing my own thing and being responsible for something on a timeline, essentially. That spanned two years, actually. So it was in the second and third year of university where I did that. That was pretty cool. And that had a big impact on me about what you could actually do yourself. If you just put your mind to it and you, you're hungry for knowledge and you're willing to actually be patient and acquire the knowledge about solving a particular problem, there's nothing you can't do, really specifically in the space of technology and starting up something from scratch. So that was actually my first foray into that. So basically open source scene, we're talking now late 90s. So this is like 96, 99. There was an open source scene, but the open source technology wasn't great. So it was very buggy. 
So what do I mean by that? When creating this backgammon game, one of the things I needed was a message bus. A message bus in technology terms, it's like a way of communicating messages from one point to another, right? Right. I could either build my own message bus or I could use one that the open source community at that time was looking at. And so I decided to look at the open source community and there was one, but it was very buggy. So I had to like fix it myself and do all kinds of different bits to it myself. But that taught me that actually you can reuse technology that other people have built or software that other people have built for your own purposes and really accelerate your track. As long as you give them credit, which is always important, but you can really start to accelerate your track and then focus your time on the business logic or the value add, which in this case was creating this game. So that's where I learned those concepts, I'd say. And they stayed with me ever since. And from that point onwards, I was always then looking to build my own like technology platform. And how did that game turn out? Was it workable? Was it now being used everywhere, like globally that we don't know about yet? Or what happened to it? Unfortunately, it didn't get global appeal, but it did get over, I think, over 300 students playing it. So my whole presentation was literally, I coordinated like the whole department, plus a whole bunch of other students from other subjects to actually play it in front of the lecturers who were assessing the project. Right. So that was pretty cool. And uh, everybody played it. Literally, it was like a tournament and there was a winner. So... Yeah, that was pretty cool, but it didn't go anywhere after that. I got my first in the project, and that was enough at the Are time. You happy with that? I was quite happy with that. Alhamdulillah. And then after university, you went off and you joined UBS, right? Yes. So basically, I, I joined their graduate training program. So look, in our community, this was an interesting thing. So just before we married to UBS, I actually didn't know anything about investment banks, and I didn't know anything about the world of financial markets or, or anything, to be fair. I was a real geek. I was really into data structures and uh, the innards of computers and, and microchips and processes and pipelines and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't really that fascinated by markets. But what happened was I actually got this internship in a place called Marlow in like West London sites. It was working in a company over the summer to basically work on, at that time, it was a mobile app and it was called WAP, right? Which was like this wireless application protocol. And they needed someone who was versed in that. And I just happened to be versed in that because I read the whole protocol, which was like, few hundred pages long and I just felt like becoming more versed in it so the company employed me now interestingly when I went to stay in Marlow because at that time I lived in Walthamstow staying in Marlow it was quite a big commute so I stayed with a friend and my friend he was actually renting a room in a mosque right so I don't know if you know Slough Mosque but actually Slough Mosque also rents out rooms to people they're quite nice right. rooms. okay and so I actually stayed with my friend in Slough Mosque for like a three to four month period He's from the London School of Economics, very smart person, mashallah. And he was running the financial side of a company called ICI. And he was like financial controller or something there. And we were basically meeting each other every day and, and I was having chats. And he was the one who said to me, hey, look, you obviously are quite good at maths and computing. Why don't you think about the investment banking world? Why don't you explore that world? I didn't even know what an investment bank was. I knew what a bank was, but I wasn't sure what an investment bank was. He taught me the difference. He said, you know, these investment banks, they deal with governments, they deal with big companies, and so on and so forth. It was an explanation. I was fascinated. And he said, oh, they're doing a lot of work in computing these days, because my friends have gone into those banks, and they're trying to automate a whole lot of stuff. So you should think about it. So in between Queen Mary to UBS, he was the one who enlightened me on that. And he was the one who kind of mentioned that, that path to me. And so I applied to a whole bunch of investment banks. Alhamdulillah, I actually got offers from four banks. UBS at the time, and you're a graduate, you're thinking, what's the best offer monetary-wise? UBS were offering the best offer. They had the best offer for grads. It was a grueling process. I mean, each investment bank, you had to go through like interviews, team exercises, psychometric tests. Like you had to literally go through all those phases. And in the community as well, what I realized was these are like coveted positions. So my parents were like, oh, this is brilliant that you're doing that. And my uncles and aunties were like, oh, brilliant, you're going to an investment bank. And I was like, oh, is it really that exciting? So yeah, I managed to get to UBS and it was a really great experience. Like I was there for 10 years and I got to work as a graduate. They're pretty cool. The graduate training program allows you to work in most of the functions of the bank just to get experience. And so I started in technology. Basically, I was building all kinds of different algos. Then I went into equities research for a while and I was working in a research team. Then I did a bit of corporate finance as well. Then I settled in an area called e-business, which was essentially like algorithmic trading and coming up with quant algos alongside also boarding a whole bunch of other 
things for other platforms. And this must have been like the time when all this stuff was just exploding, right? Because the technology yeah. was just getting to the right stage. Absolutely. So like, obviously, the traders and the investment bankers were investing a lot of money in automation and really helping them in their trading decisions, right? And then there's a whole like risk element to the whole trading lifecycle. So then you have a whole department around risk. And that itself has so many different facets to it, which spawn a whole load of different tool sets to basically manage risk. And then there's compliance. And then you have M&A, you have IB, you then have the wealth management side and so many different aspects. These banks are huge with loads of different aspects to them. So absolutely, the investment in technology was quite large. And so I was pretty much one of many, many different people in that space who had differing skills, but sought after skills. So I was quite lucky and fortunate in that respect. But actually, what was really cool about UBS was how open they were and how diverse they were to different cultures, I found. And so when I got there, I wanted to read Salah. And I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting, right? And there was a period where I was praying Salah in the corridors. There was a corridor that nobody was using and I'd literally pray there because there wasn't a prayer room. UBS also had this like chat system where and chat rooms. So they were quite ahead of their time, I'd say. And we had this like Muslim brothers chat room where we would all coordinate with each other. And basically... We turned around and said, you know what? We actually need a proper pair room. And there wasn't one in UBS at the time. And we needed to form a society because in UBS, you had all these different societies, the Christian society, the Hindu society, Jewish society, and then a whole bunch of other extracurricular societies. And alhamdulillah, like I actually proposed the idea. I said, look, you know, we should have an Islamic society. And I actually started the Islamic society at UBS. Now I'm remembering back, alhamdulillah. And the brothers, we all got together and there were some really senior brothers as well. And we got their signatures saying, hey, look, there's quite a bit of demand for this. And UBS were brilliant. They actually created a really nice room for us with with the facilities. And it was dedicated to that. And then we started talking about Ramadan and we started having like Eid parties as well. So UBS were quite good on that front. And it showed me as well that actually, yes, for sure, there's discrimination in many different companies and, and many people do face that. But actually, I've just been very fortunate throughout my career that I've not faced much of that. And I've actually seen the other side where people are very welcoming and actually they do support you if you just are clear about what you want and they see the benefit in it. They absolutely do listen. And so that was quite nice. What were the hours like at UBS? Because obviously you hear about investment banking hours. Was it as bad in your department or not? I would say they were quite long to start with. But once you get the experience and understanding of what's needed, right, and the way the culture is and how they operate, They've started to flatten out for me, but there were definitely departments which were working very long hours. So, for example, equities research, my goodness, like you'd be up at six in the morning and literally in the office at six in the morning. And sometimes you'd be leaving 12 or one o'clock because there's like all kinds of reporting you have to do around the globe. Yeah, there were definitely departments like that. But I'd say the department I settled in, it was pretty much like you have to be in six or seven, but you're operating based upon the market open hours that you're operating in. And so I'd be out by like sometimes half four, sometimes six. It settled across. But there were definitely times when there were long hours. Brilliant. And then so your experience in UBS led you to ultimately then exit UBS, right? And set up yeah. your own thing. How did that process start? When did the idea come to you? And how did you handle the exit and the nurturing phase of that idea? Sure. So in, I would say this is now 2008 when the credit crunch occurred, the desk I was working on, basically they were fielding a whole bunch of phone calls from very large clients. So these are like top asset managers in the world who have like between $1 trillion of assets under management to like hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management, billions, if not millions. And these guys, their representatives would call the desk and say, hey, look, I'm looking to place a large position in either equities, stocks, bonds, whatever, could you source the other side from? So they would literally ring up the bank and say, hey, could you help me buy X, for example? Now, when the bank would receive that inquiry and members of the team would receive that inquiry, they would start to fish around the market to find the other side of this trade. In so doing, they would leak information to the market inadvertently. And the market would start to move against the client, right? And so this information leakage became a problem and a consistent problem. And we started to lose business as a result. And it wasn't just in our bank, it was actually many banks were experiencing this problem. 
And so I came up with an idea to solve it. It was like a, a matching engine where you could literally signal your interest anonymously. Somebody else could signal the interest anonymously. And using like a, a smart matching algorithm, it would literally marry up your interests and alert you both. And then using a piecemeal negotiation protocol, you could discover each other, right? And then right at the end, just before you do the trade, once you've negotiated, you discover each other. This was something I thought of. I literally, I went to the powers that be and I said, look, I want to build this because I think this will solve a very particular problem that the desk is facing. And the powers that be rejected the idea. They said, actually, this is a, you know, so good. somebody said, you're smoking crack. Somebody else said, oh, no, this is completely crazy. This is not going to work. And so I really felt passionate about it. And from my days at uni, where I learned that actually you can build anything you want if you just work hard and you know, you're patient and try and tap the resources that are available outside on the internet. With that type of thinking, it just kind of came to the fore again. And I had this like sudden rush of, you know what, I think I can do this. And I resigned. So I resigned from UBS to basically go and build this platform. Now, that was interesting because when I got home, my wife was actually expecting our second child at the time. And I was very nervous in actually telling her. <laughs> so I didn't tell her. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to come home and I'm going to go to my loft. I'm going to start building this thing. Um, I'm going to start coding it, right? Literally, I, I did that. And two weeks went by and my parents weren't aware. My wife wasn't aware. None of my family were aware. And two weeks went by. And at that point, my wife was like, so why haven't you gone back to work yet? And if you were on holiday, like, why didn't you tell me? Kind of thing. And then I broke the news. Alhamdulillah, like she was cool about it. Thank God. Could have gone another way completely. My parents yeah. thought I was insane. Like they generally thought I was insane. So that was interesting. And a lot of my friends as well thought I was insane because like, I had a really good, it was a highly paid job, I'd say, relative to the time. It was quite prestigious as well in the community. And obviously my parents, they loved the fact that I was doing that. And obviously I was an inspiration to my brothers as well. I have younger brothers and sisters, one sister and three brothers. They were just like, oh, what, what happened to you? Craziness. And so long story short, for about nine months, I really focused in and built that platform. And I felt I needed a business partner as well. So one of my good friends who worked with me at UBS, Robert House, a very close friend of mine, and we worked really closely with each other and we brought a lot of trust over seven to eight years of knowing each other. I went to him and I said, look, I'm building this thing. I think you have good skills as well. And about six months into it, I asked him to come and join me and he did. He literally dropped everything and joined me as well. And so he's in his living room. I'm in my loft and we're using Skype. At the time, Skype was the way to communicate and it wasn't great, like it kept disconnecting. And we were like, you know what? We now need to get an office, right? Because we keep disconnecting and we can't afford. Basically, our phone bills were like going crazy and that was becoming a problem. And so we were like, you know what? We just need to find an office, like a place where we can sit and literally code together. And so we found an office in East London and it wasn't the best office in the world. I mean, my view was ventilator shafts right? <laughs> very long time, right? But we were coding away and we built the platform. It was great. It was a really good time, I must say. We bought the platform and I basically took it back to UBS. The business guys at UBS who really understood the problem, who were at the desks, who understood the problem, I knew them and I contacted them and I said, look, I've actually built this platform which solves the information leakage problem and I think you guys need to look at it, right? And I got the meeting and went through the whole demonstration and they were just like, we need this. We actually need this thing. And I struck a deal with UBS. It was my first deal, basically, and it was quite a large deal. It was an exclusive arrangement for a couple of years. And that company was called CapexD. So this was just before Algamy. It was called CapexD. And literally, it was myself, Rob, and we outsourced some developers. But we licensed this thing back to UBS. And they ended up printing over $18 billion. And they rolled it out to about 250 clients. They acted as the central match principal party. So that was pretty cool. That was my first entrepreneurial risk-based adventure. And it taught me a lot. I mean, you are literally, as the analogy of, I don't remember the person's name now, but somebody said, you're jumping off a cliff and you're basically creating your parachute while you fall. Right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It literally is like that. Because, you know, you see your savings deplete every month and you see your wife looking at you thinking you're insane and your parents on top of that. And so you've got to just weather all of that if you really believe in your idea. But you've got to be intelligent about it as well. You've got to do it in a way where hopefully there is a reasonable degree of success. But there are many occasions where you're not sure whether it will succeed. And really, at that point, the dean really helps, actually, because 
you realize that, and I'm a big believer, obviously, in your rizq is from Allah, it's fixed. You've got to tie your camel, as the Prophet said, and you've got to do what's in your control. But risk is fixed. In the end of the day, our sustenance is fixed. No matter how hard we work and how hard we try, whatever we get in the end is fixed for us. I'm a big believer in that. And so that really helps because once you've tried your hardest, if the outcome you wanted wasn't achieved, you say, Alhamdulillah, right? It wasn't to be and you take the learnings from it and you move on to the next thing. And if it was achieved, you say, Alhamdulillah. And then again, you take the learnings and move on to the next thing. Those are very powerful concepts in the deen. No, absolutely. And... Osman, from the day you quit to the day UBS signed up this deal with you, how long did that take? It was uh, nine months. Wow, nine. that's a long time to kind of yeah hang out waiting for something to happen. Absolutely. How long did the deal take, like from the initial meeting with UBS to actually signing a deal? That's an interesting story as well, actually. So this was my first foray into a commercial agreement and actually creating a commercial agreement. Because I, I had never created a commercial agreement. Yeah. Um, I was working at a bank and we had lawyers, they do all of that. And I never ever got involved in any of that element. I knew commercial agreements exist, but I never got involved in constructing one. And so it was interesting. What happened was UBS, they, they gave us a big contract. They gave us like a big document, right? Saying this is the document that we want you guys to sign. And I started reading it. Who were their lawyers it. out of interest? Their lawyers were Alan and Overy. Interesting. And I don't know, now check this out. This is quite, this, this, well, this may sound funny, but um, what happened was the document was from Ellen Overy, and I didn't even know who Ellen Overy was at the time. So right. I, Googled, I Googled their name and the magic circle of law firms came back. Right. Yeah. I saw Ellen Overy's name. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. It's clearly, this is a big law firm. In my mind, I had like solicitors from Ilford <laughs> in, in my mind, right? Or, you know, some lawyer in some office in Walthamstow. So yeah. I, those are the guys at that time I had in my mind, right? Anyway, so I started reading the document and I found that there's terminology in the document I just didn't understand. It wasn't as simple as your mobile phone contract, right? Or what have you. And so I was like, okay, we need to hire lawyers. We need lawyers as well, right? We need lawyers. So this is quite funny. So we Googled the firm and an ovary and we saw that they belong to this magic circle. And I can see where this is going. We were like, oh, we need to pick a firm from that magic circle. That's what we need. We need to pick a firm from the magic circle. We were like, which one sounds the best? <laughs> and Freshfield sounded the best out of all of them. I thought you were going to say Sportra May, because that sounds no, like a good name. I know, there was something fresh about Freshfields in the name. <laughs> and so basically we went to their website. And on their website, they had all the partners listed. And they had partners covering all these different divisions. And there was one partner who covered technology IP, basically, right? So we clicked on his profile. His phone number was there. So we phoned him up and his assistant put us through. And so we started telling him our story and we started telling him what we're doing. And he literally paused and said, look, guys, can you afford this? Can you afford a £25,000 retainer before we even continue this chat? <laughs> we were like, there's no way we could afford £25,000 right now. Maybe afterwards we can, but not now. So that was quite an awakening to the corporate law world and how expensive it is. That so, sounds really harsh though as well from his side. Yeah, but that's what happened. That's actually what happened. So then I started going to my network and I started asking my friends like, look, you know, we have a deal and we need lawyers on our side to help us basically go through this agreement and basically represent us in the negotiations, the legal negotiations. And one of my good friends pointed me to this law firm called Technology Law Alliance, TL Law, brilliant firm. So these were like ex-senior commercial lawyers who basically they've done their time and now they do like, they help startups, they help small companies yeah, yeah, yeah. do these like corporate deals, right? And they were great. So like I was put in touch with them and they said, look, we'll charge a small fee now, right? Just for our work. But if the deal closes, we were like X tiny percent of that. And we were like, perfect. We don't mind that at all. Yeah. And they were brilliant. So they helped us. They helped us mark up the document. They helped negotiate with their lawyers. Both UBS and CapExD got the deal they wanted. And in the end, the law firm was brilliant. They did really well. They probably got paid more than what anybody else would have got paid if we operated the retainer rule. You know? Yeah. Osman, this is something that Mosa and I both are lawyers from city backgrounds. And I actually we used to work at Ashurst and I represented UBS on a few matters. So that's why I was asking. But... Now, with this angel syndicate that we run, ifg.vc, we regularly get startup founders just asking us 
we've got this contract or we've got this IP dispute or we've got this, that and the other. Who are the best lawyers to talk to? And we kind of just take it for granted. But increasingly, I kind of found that having that background really helps. When it gets to the business end of things, you always have a lawyer involved on both sides. Obviously, you know, we're law abiding citizens, right? But when it came to commercial law, I really figured out its value when we did that commercial agreement negotiation. Like that really dawned on me. And, and I think if there are firms like your firm, like TL that are there for startups, firstly, I think it's a huge market. Secondly, I think it's just a good thing because startups are vulnerable, right, in the early days and they don't have much cash, right? Oh, and so oh. by having experienced people represent them, especially when you're a startup with a good product that big firms want, that's the time when people that's like yourself- the scariest. Yeah. And people like yourself actually are of huge value, actually, to those firms. I mean, just to clarify, we don't do legal work anymore, but we will point you in the right direction and tell you, all right, these people, if you talk to them this way, you'll probably get it for quite cheap and they're probably the right people to talk to at this stage and that sort of thing. No, got it. That was our first foray into commercial law. It was, it was fascinating. It was a great learning experience. And we did CapExD for two years. And then it was after CapExD we went into Algamy. What was Algamy and how did that come about? By the way, before we end the CapExD, how did that transition happen? How big had you become by that time? If you can share numbers, that's even better, just to kind of highlight things. Sure. So CapExD, we were very comfortable with UBS. Like we had an exclusive arrangement for about two years. And because we rolled it out with them, they did all the business side. So we gave them the tech. We hosted it on their servers. We supported it. So really, it was like myself and Rob, and we just had a couple of people externally supporting us. But it wasn't a huge team. CapExD was a very lean operation and highly lucrative operation for us. But then what happened was, come, I think it was 2012, basically due to a whole bunch of various changes inside UBS, we got to a point where they were happy with what they'd achieved. They were now moving into different areas. And we got to a point where we were like, we want to kind of branch out now. And we want more banks on using this platform after the two-year period. And at that point, we decided that actually the dark pool, basically the regulators started also looking at the dark pool element of all of this. And this the regulators- like pre-MIFID, right? This is all pre-MIFID. This is pre-MIFID. For yeah. listeners, MIFID is the re- regulatory regime introduced by the European Union, which, well, looked to do a whole bunch of things, but amongst which it looked to try and make things much more transparent between counterparties in a transaction. That's exactly right, yes. And so dark pools became frowned upon at that point. And so we had to change the product because the regulators were like, we don't want dark pools anymore. And that was literally dark pools in equities and dark pools in fixed income and and a whole bunch of other areas. That became a challenge. And then the work required to, as they call it, make lit markets was very heavy. So what we realized was actually what this platform was actually doing and just, Osman, yeah. just sorry, just to interrupt again, would you mind just in like 20 seconds explaining what a dark pool is to someone who has no idea? Sure. So again, it can vary in different sectors, but essentially it's where you're placing an order to buy or sell something anonymously. And it's going into a pool of other orders. And essentially there's a matching engine matching those orders up and alerting you when there's a match, right? So that's essentially what a dark pool is. In general terms, Say you're going to a site where you're trying to connect with someone anonymously and you're describing yourself, the other person describes themselves and you connect and then you discover each other. It's actually a very similar concept to that. Interesting. So you were saying that there's going to be a lot of work needed to switch this over to a new kind of setup. Yeah. And so we decided that actually that's not the path for us to go. And what we realized was that actually the product we built, one of its core competencies was the ability to ingest large amounts of data from different sources, right? So textual information, numerical information, as well as a whole bunch of other information. Basically, that was like a core power. And it was bringing all that information, random unstructured information, and structuring it. And basically creating like a real-time database that people could then interrogate. At the heart of it, that's what that system was. And so we thought, who else wants to solve that problem where they're getting large unstructured sets of financial data which they want to structure and gain insights from, who else wants to solve that problem, right? And we realized that actually a lot of the large investment banks, they have a ton of data about, for example, who holds what stock, who holds what bond, what's the position our internal trader holds, who is inquiring right now, 
on a given asset or instrument. Right? All these data points exist inside banks, but they exist in different databases, in the Excel spreadsheets, in the diaries of salespeople or, or traders. Right? And really the idea was, how do we digitize all of that so that people can analyze it and create insights and therefore trade better? That's what we realized. And so at that point, we rebranded and we basically formed a new company called Algamy. And Algamy actually stood for Algorithms for Market Intelligence. Obviously, we had to change from CapexD because CapexD stood for Capital Extra Dark. <laughs> right. We were like extra dark, right? So we, we kind of want to get away from that. So Algamy yeah. was Algorithms for Market Intelligence. And alhamdulillah, the one credit I do get is I came up with the name. And the name was inspired by Alchemy. And also, I wanted a name that began with an A. Because I remember in CapexD days when we were going to conferences, when they were showing the names of companies, CapexD was like third or fourth because it was starting with a C. And I was like, I want a company that starts with an A, so it was at the top. <laughs> yeah. And Algumi was that. And the name itself was pretty cool because we were building algorithms and we were trying to basically create market intelligence. So combining those words together created Algumi. And Algumi was a partnership of four people. It was myself, Robert Howes, my partner from CapexD. And we also partnered with two other individuals. So Stu Taylor, who was basically a banker, managing director, ran trading desks for many banks. He liked our technology. He liked the idea of what we were doing. And he had a lot of contacts. So he knew the heads of credit trading in other banks. And I thought it was important to have somebody on board that really knew senior people in these investment banks and asset management firms. And my other partner was Michael Schmidt, who basically was like at the board of various banks, very senior person. Again, he had huge connectivity into very large asset management firms and banks, and also investment firms, as in VCs. And so we literally came together and formed Algamy as a four. And we had the technology, and these guys had the contacts in the space we wanted to go into. And it was a great combination. Like, we all knew our strengths, we all knew our weaknesses, and we were very complementary. We had very complementary skill sets. And we came together, and we then kind of rejigged the platform, where it became a information database, essentially, that was able to bring in unstructured information, structure it, and then allow people to generate insights of it. And so long story short, Algamy was designed to essentially create this network, and we ended up rolling it out to over 200 asset management firms, very large ones, and over 30 investment banks. And that became a network. So we created what we call the Honeycomb Network that connected all these different entities and helped them discover trading opportunities. So it was quite cool because... Basically, software we'd written in our loft, right, in Walthamstow, was now sitting inside some of the largest investment banks around the world, right? So that's crazy. That, that's pretty cool, right? Well, Smart, yeah. there's a lot to ask you, but obviously time is running. What I really wanted to ask here is, because obviously, you, you know, the way you, in the last couple of sentences, you kind of jumped from the concept to an incredibly successful business. And obviously, there must have been a lot of heartache in that process. Oh, yeah contained in those few sentences and what I wanted to just ask you about is the whole sales process how did you go about selling this concept which is really obviously needed but not being used right there wasn't really a competitor in the market doing this it was completely blue sky blue ocean kind of stuff how did you convince large bureaucratic organizations to change their mind on this and, and take a punt That's a great question, and I will try my best to summarize it, because actually there's a lot to it. So again, just before Algumi, I actually tried to sell the software myself to Barclays, to Goldman's, to Deutsche Bank, to various banks, right, Credit Suisse as well. And I failed, right, because I couldn't get to the right person. Basically, I was hitting people who just weren't able to make decisions in terms of taking the software on. That was one of the main reasons why I felt I needed to partner from the get-go with individuals who knew the main decision makers, people who could basically sign the checkbooks in these places. And so from the get-go, thank Allah, I had partners with me who were very well connected. And what I also knew in the city, just from working in UBS, a lot of it is about network. A lot of it is about who you know. And people do each other favors over time. Firstly, it has to be of mutual benefit, but it is very favor-oriented. Back then it was anyway. So Stu Taylor, who was our CEO, basically he was the CEO of the company, He was very well connected to trading desks. We first thought that it was very important for us to come up with a very clear pitch of what we are doing and what we are selling. 
I think at the time in 2012, we were one of the first fintechs in Europe. And we were one of the first firms that was talking about digitizing voice, right? So if you think about traditionally what a lot of the investment banks were doing in fixed income inequities, they were using the phone to negotiate. And they were using the phone to make deals and close deals and reject them. But the problem with that was even though they were trying to automate the transcription of the phone call, there were many errors in it. And so the way we did was we tapped into this wave of a desire amongst all these banks to digitize voice, essentially, right? And so that was like the core offering that we came up with. And so we said, okay, here's a way to digitize voice. So all these orders you type in to your OMS platforms that you get from the customer, we're going to give you a more efficient way to type those in, a much more efficient way to type those in. All these prices that your traders are quoting, we're going to give you a much more efficient way to quote them and also put them into a database as they're being quoted. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that we also automated voice-wise. That resonated very well with the banking community. And so Stu said, look, we need to hire other salespeople who are from that community, right? To really accelerate getting into the divisions that can essentially sign the checks, but also who are willing to listen and understand what the problem is. And also who are willing to give us feedback so we can iterate our product to fit their needs as well. And so by hiring the right individuals, we really understood who the individuals were in the, the sector we were going into that were really passionate about solving this problem. I would say that was one of the core ways that we were able to really accelerate this effort. Now, once you get a couple of large investment banks, and we had four very large investment banks sign up right at the beginning, that was Stu was able to just do that. Once you got those banks and your product is in, and yes, it takes a lot to actually go in and integrate a product with a bank. But once you get that working, the word starts to spread around. And at that point, other banks want it. So there's a domino effect, right? And then what was interesting was as we started putting these, as we call them, super advanced CRM systems inside these banks, what happens is when the buy side are calling up the sell side and saying, hey, I'm interested in buying this particular asset, the salesperson on the other end was using our system. They were able to answer the query super quickly using our system. And the buy side used to comment and say, hey, we know when people are using your system. It was called synchronicity at the time. So they're like, we know the banks that use synchronicity because they're able to respond quickly. And so the buy side then turned around and said, hey, we would like to actually get access to these systems directly with the banks. That spawned the Honeycomb network, right? So there was a problem. People wanted to digitize voice. We created a solution that tapped into that, that whole narrative. And we were able to then hire the right people to really expand our footprint amongst that community. And then the product had to be good because the bar is always really high in these places. And as long as your product is good, people start talking about it. And a lot of the city is about word of mouth amongst influential people. And then we were blessed enough to have the buy side to turn around and say, hey, we actually want to connect to your product in these banks, forming a whole information network. So that's how we navigated it. And then in that whole process, you have to hire CRM people to look after the client, obviously good salespeople to navigate the clients and get new business, very good lawyers because each one of these banks have lawyers that you have to talk to with commercial agreements. And then there are project management teams. Obviously, your testing has to be really good. Then you have to have your software engineering team, both back-end, both front-end. Then you have to have a support and operations team that are managing all the products as they're because they're live, and you have to manage the network. That's what causes the whole 200 or so people. What was your role in Algamy? I was obviously co-founder and CTO, but to be fair... Technical officer. Chief technology officer. But to be fair, like the four founders, we were pretty much doing everything. So I was actually selling a lot. Like I would say the first year and a half of Algamy, I was like very hands-on doing tech. But the latter part, it was myself and Stu going around the market, convincing these banks and with our sales team to basically use us. So it was very much client-facing role. Interesting. I'm aware of the time and I don't want us to go too much over the hour. There's just so much more to ask you. It sounds like you've done two startups, essentially, and have smashed it out of the park on both both startups, mashallah. And it sounds like it was relatively plain sailing once you went. Obviously, I'm summarizing the whole story. Of course. There were definitely challenges throughout. What would you say was the key to your success in going from the first sale to properly like scaling hard on both of them? I would say the key element by the way, there are so many actually core elements in this type of thing, but of course. you have to have a good product. Your product has to stand up. Your users have to be happy. 
when you have salespeople and traders in one investment bank, when they're using your product, they really have to get value from it. And if they get value from it, when they have their dinners, they will speak to their colleagues and literally tell their colleagues about it. Or they'll be on Bloomberg chat or some other chat system and they will literally chat their friends about it. Right. And literally there is an organic element to it. And then what you have to be aware of, and this is why you need good salespeople or CRM people, they have to be aware that your clients are talking like this. And if they're not, why aren't they? And having a very good product feedback loop is critical. So as the users are using it, one problem when you give software to like a large institution is you don't get direct feedback because they have firewalls in place. You're not able to measure how users are actually using the product. So you have to have people do that measurement for you, right? And so as long as you're getting the intel about how the product is being used, you can then make sure that you're trying to make it that product market fit such that the users have a good experience. Everything really is about that. Once you've got that, you can literally pitch it. You can use examples of how people are using it. And then other people naturally like examples. They like to see successes. And so they start to then use it. So I would say having a good product you know, putting a lot of effort in making sure it's good is like the key element to success. And you said your salespeople are really good at getting that feedback. How do they do it? Basically, in this world, like you have the big platforms, right? Like Bloomberg, Market Access, TradeWeb. You can learn a lot from them. So like what they typically have, when I was at UBS, for example, I had like somebody from Bloomberg look after me. So literally like I had someone on call, like if I had a problem with Bloomberg, I could call them up and literally they'd look after me. People used to come around with donuts. They used to come around with like food stuff, right? Every Fridays, they would literally come and say, hey, hey, how's it going? Any feedback, anything interesting? In that five minutes, I'd probably talk about a particular function I was using that would literally be the objective that they were trying to achieve to get that information. And you learn from those tactics. And so we employed CRM people to do the same thing. When you give a system to an investment bank, they expect that you have some kind of client relationship management apparatus. And so literally we had like a team of CRM who literally would go into the banks. They'd establish relationships with the traders. And as the traders and the salespeople use the product, they would literally like once or twice a week, visit them, discuss with them, take gifts, right? From the perspective of simple things like stress balls, teddy bears in one case, sometimes food stuff. And you get like a natural rapport going. Then these guys, they build a relationship up. If the platform isn't working, we get that firsthand. If it is working, we also get that firsthand through our people. That's an expensive proposition, but obviously if you're printing enough revenues, you can afford it, but it does help you in this B2B setting of dealing with large investment banks and asset management firms. That makes sense. Jazakallah khair. And then finally, Osman, I just wanted to touch on your new startup, Apex3. You, did you exit from Algamy and how did that Apex3 come around? Sure. So in June 2019, so Algamy actually exited earlier this year, alhamdulillah, but like basically... In June 2019, I got to a point where the company was running really well, homegrown management. So I actually became the CEO of the company as well. So like about, I think it was 2018 or 17, I don't remember now. But literally, I was asked to become CEO of the company. It's because the other CEO moved on, right? And so I did that for a couple of years. Did you have any external capital at all during Algamy? Was this all just organic? Oh, no, no, we we did. Absolutely. Uh, We raised capital and, you know, the partners included like Lakestar. S&P Global, Euroclare, Euronext, Alliance Bernstein. So these were all our board members. And we raised capital from all these different entities because wow. they were very interested in what we were doing. That was my board, basically. That's a serious board. Yeah. And I have very good relationships with all of these people. And in fact, to some extent, they're involved in my new company as well. I always wanted to create a multi-asset analytics platform. And what I mean by that is Algamy became a technology platform. It's a technology platform. Although we create network, it was still a technology play, a very lucrative one, a very good one. But my fascination has always been in data and creating essentially data analytics and creating those ingredients to really create the true AI, as I call it, where it's powered by really good data. Right? But the first step before you get to AI, you have to have good data. And especially in the financial space, I feel that firstly, data is so expensive. I feel we can democratize access to it in a much cheaper way. And again, going back to my roots of using open source technology, if you know what you're doing, you can build technology that traditionally is very expensive, but you can do it with a fewer set of people, thereby reducing your cost base and thereby allowing you to offer it at a much cheaper price compared to what competitors would do. So we've actually built a platform which we offer to actually retail traders 
and investment banks and, and hedge funds alike, and it ingests information from a whole bunch of different places, digital assets, equities, FX, commodities. But this time around, also looking at the order books. So traditionally, we were looking at just prices and trade history, but this time we're going into the fine granularity of the actual order book itself. And what I mean by that is, you know, like if you want to exchange currency, if you want to exchange pounds for dollars, for example, right? Behind that, there's an order book that people are sending their bids for pounds and dollars, sending their offers for pounds and dollars. And that order book is being brought up and it's changing dynamically super fast. And if you can analyze that order book in fine granularity, you can get a lot of insight about where you think the rate is going to go. You can actually automate that process. And so we've done that across thousands of markets now in Apex E3. And then we've augmented that with news, social media data, and then what we call alternative data. So weather data, geopolitical data, bringing all of that into one place. And then we're going to offer this platform for users to use at a very low cost price, essentially. So we launched in the digital asset world in February. And the idea now is to expand into other assets, hopefully throughout this year. That's a very brief summary of Apex C3. And it's a whole other story in itself. That's incredible. I'm going to check out Apex 3 myself. It sounds you. absolutely fascinating. Jazakallah khair, Osman, for making the time and coming onto this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And I think, inshallah, we'll have to get you on later on at some point to just, apart from your absolutely fascinating journey, I think it'd be great for you to just go into a lot more detail on the nuts and bolts of what it takes to be a successful founder. Sure. So perhaps you can set that up. It would be a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. But Jazakallah khair once again. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com.